0: At the end of our service, we are going to be praying for and commissioning and hearing from Colleen Nanachuk. but I've also asked her, because this is going to be the last Sunday that we're going to have her here for a while, so I've asked her if she could come and read our scripture this morning from Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14.
1: Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory?
0: So quick review from last week last week. We looked at verses 1 to 3 And we covered who you are where you are what you have in Christ the first who you are every Christian is a saint we were sinners that was our core identity now in Christ we are Saints so I came across this uh, little quote from Lydia Brombach who said in Christ we are daily becoming what we already are and that really plays off that theme in Ephesians that you are a saint now live into that identity We also looked at where you are. Every Christian is in the world and in Christ. We talked about Mickey Mouse, Disney World. There's people who are in Disney World, but there are special people who are in Disney World and in Mickey Mouse. And being in Mickey Mouse confers certain rights and responsibilities. And it changes your identity. It changes how you move into the world. And what you have, every Christian has every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then what Paul is doing now, verses 3 to 14, is expanding and expounding and explaining what those blessings are, some of them. This is certainly not an exhaustive list, but he's trying to hit on some high marks. And the reason why I'm going back into verse 3 and then going all the way through 14 is that in the Greek, verses 3 all the way to 14 is one continuous run on sentence. There's actually no break. Paul has several of these through the book of Ephesians, I think uh, there's eight. And I'll highlight those when we get to them. I think this is the longest one, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it is. It's the longest one, and it's actually, um, and I don't know if this is confirmed, but a few scholars who study New Testament Greek and ancient Greek, they have never found a longer sentence written in Greek across any um, literature. And so they're even hesitant to call it a sentence. They just kind of call it a monstrous word conglomeration. It's just this massive epic praise rant that is just stream of consciousness. I told Colleen if she could say all of this in one breath, that would add to the authenticity of the reading but that's hard to do because it's about a solid two minute reading. Our English translation does break it up into sentences just for readability obviously but that's important to know that Paul starts and then he just kind of spews out this huge rant of praise, highlighting all the ways that we've been blessed in Christ. And so there's a real energy to this passage. So I'm going to be moving through it fairly quickly, pedagogically, to give you a sense of that intensity where we're not landing on any one point for too long. We're moving through it quickly, and so, but we're also going to be covering a lot of ground because this is a really dense passage. So if there are things that you miss or that you feel like we didn't spend enough time on or that you... Uh, we're hoping to steepen for a longer period of time, Uh, go back, listen to the message a few times because we are going to move through this fairly quickly. So verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, every blessing of the Spirit, every blessing of the Holy Spirit. What does that include? Paul begins, verse 4, For he, God, chose us in him, in Jesus, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. So we are chosen. Now, right away, that moves, that, that moves into a sphere of conversation that includes topics like chosenness or election and predestination and God's sovereignty and human free will. We'll get to that because Paul touches on that pretty consistently throughout here, but I'm, I want to just hit the pause button on that particular topic in order for us to focus on what might get lost if you jump into that which is what is the point of us being chosen why are we chosen in him and it says to be holy and blameless in his sight that is the point in verse 2 he said you are saints that's your identity now in Christ you are now called as a saint to live into holiness and blamelessness and he mentioned those two words to emphasize holiness is about putting on the attributes of Christ that display God's goodness and love and generosity. And the blamelessness is obviously putting away sinful attitudes. Uh, It's about the uh, turning aside from sin, looking at ungodly patterns of speech or thought or behavior and saying, I'm not, so it's not just about holiness. Sometimes we think of as just not being bad, but it's both a pressing into growing in our capacity for goodness and generosity and love and courage and wisdom while at the same time putting to death those patterns and practices that were a part of our, our lives when we were sinners but we're no longer sinners in Christ, we're saints. Doesn't, again, that doesn't mean that we don't sin, it's just our core identity has been changed so when we do sin, we're able to get a critical distance and say, oh that's not me, that's my behavior go to God, work on it and move away from it. Because if once you wed your behavior with your identity, then what will essentially happen is um, if you see your core identity as sinner, then you will just sort of live into that. And you will, uh, well, it's, it's a pretty short step to just kind of despair and to move into spiritual apathy because well, how much change is really possible? After all, I'm just a sinner. And Paul saying you're not actually just a sinner. And we'll get to the amazing gift that you've been given in the latter verses of this section. So you've been given a new identity in Christ and now Christ has begun a powerful process to move you towards a life of holiness and blamelessness. And I know that holiness and blamelessness, even words like righteousness as they're applied to our lives, can, well, they've certainly fallen out of favor with a lot of people today, even a lot of Christians. People can hear that. As a call to being very religiously rigid and being legalistic, and certainly it could go there, but just as easily, I was probably part of a generation who swung in the other direction, and in order to avoid being legalistic or avoid religious rigidity, sort of played with. Well, I'm a Christian. I'm forgiven now, so how I live. I mean, it sort of obviously matters, but it doesn't like really, really matter because I'm going to heaven. So I can just kind of just generally be a good person, but I don't need to really press into holiness and stuff. That's for like super keener Christians. And I think that is a temptation that we need to guard against as well. Kind of a cheap grace. I'm saved. So therefore, I mean, really, if I continue in sin, is it really a big deal? Because God's just going to forgive me anyways. Paul says, no, you have been chosen in order to grow into holiness and blamelessness. That's one of the major calls on your life. When I used to have students come to me and say, I want to know God's will for my life, one of the things I used to tell them is, we don't have to have any more conversations up to, like we can, but right out of the gate, I can tell you exactly what God wills for your life. One of the things that God wills, for sure, is that you grow in holiness and blamelessness. We don't even need to pray about it. God has declared it. Now again, usually what they're asking is, what about the particularities of my life? That's fine, but let's make sure we understand that under the umbrella of you are called in Christ to be holy and blameless. That is a major calling on your life. Again, a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, for some people, there can be a temptation to see the point of our chosenness is just to rest in our own sense of like, oh, I'm forgiven, that's great. There's even bumper stickers that say things like, I'm a Christian, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. I understand the sentiment of a bumper sticker like that, you don't want to come across as holier than thou to other people, but Paul actually says a different message. He says, you're not just forgiven. You are now in Christ, you are now a saint, now you live into that new identity. That's a higher calling than just having your sins forgiven, which is awesome, Paul's gonna get to that, but he's saying there's something bigger at work here. It's not just that God has put away his sin, your sins, he has placed in you the mechanism through which and the power to move into your full image-bearing self where all of the unique talents and personality quirks and capacities and spiritual gifts, there's special things in you that you need to grow in and grow in your character of Christ-likeness because God wants to shape and bless the world in a very specific way through you. Paul might say, think of it this way, Jesus didn't die for you to go to heaven. Jesus didn't choose you to go to heaven. Heaven isn't the point. Heaven's an amazing inheritance. It's a reward. Jesus has not saved you for heaven. Jesus has saved you for earth. You've been saved for here and now. You have a job to do here and now. You are in Christ. You are holy ones. You are saints. You've been set apart for a divine purpose. And that means, broadly speaking, you are placed where you are now you are in Nelson and in Christ Jesus in order to go on the journey and it's sometimes it's complex and it's confusing and it's, it's challenging but how what is how is God uniquely calling me to love him and love other people as I grow in holiness and as I put on the character of Christ verse 5 in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Notice Paul says, he's predestined us to be adopted as his sons. This does not mean that women are excluded from salvation, that God's blessings only apply to uh, one gender. Rather, in the ancient context, only sons received an inheritance. We've talked about this before if you've been tracking with any of our sermons over the last few years. Only sons receive an inheritance. And so what Paul is saying here is that this is part of the good news, that in Christ, yes, we've all been adopted as sons and daughters of God in a a technical sense, but in a legal inheritance sense, we all have access to God's blessings as if we were sons in an ancient cultural context, which means there's no longer any spiritual hierarchy between male and female as it relates to accessing God's inheritance and blessings we're all conferred the blessings of adoption as if we were sons, which is a very powerful message in a first century context where women were definitely seen as second class to men. And even within the early Christian church, there was a suspicion that if I was a Jewish Christian man, then I had a leg up on just a Gentile Christian man. And what Paul is saying here is, do you see what God has done? He has adopted all of us into his family as if we were sons. Therefore, no one has a right, the inference is, therefore, no one has a right to look at someone else who is in Christ and to try and establish some kind of spiritual pecking order. We are all sons and daughters of the king. The gospel is the great equalizer. It's a pretty subversive and powerful message in a first century context. He says we've been adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. Adoption is one of the major metaphors the New Testament used to explain what it means to become a Christian. We aren't just saved individually where my soul, who I am, is saved and now it's just me and God and I just live my life with God. I'm saved into a family. And that family isn't vague like the family of God all over the world, although there's an element to which that is true. It's I am saved and baptized into a believing community and I'm saved into a new family where I'm learning how to be a brother and sister in Christ to other people who God has saved by His grace. And this is why, if you listen to me long enough, you'll hear me come back to this theme again and again, (laughs) that I think it's really important to invest in the local church. Time, energy, money, the whole thing. Because part of the way we're to understand our commitment to each other is like a family. That doesn't mean the family's perfect. There's still dysfunction. We're saints learning to live into that identity, learning to grow in holiness, learning to become blameless. And that doesn't happen without friction and mistakes and then having to learn to extend grace and to forgive each other. But that's our calling. If all, if, if Sunday morning and All that happens here, if you just see it as sort of a helpful institutional crutch that some Christians and people need to live out their faith, or just a preferential thing, um, then very little of the New Testament is going to make sense to you. There's going to be all kinds of dissonance as you read and study the calling that you have as a Christian. But if a major dimension, not the only dimension, but if a major dimension of what is happening here on Sunday morning and as we gather here, in, as we gather together in different ways, in small groups, and one-on-one over coffee, and as we bear each other's burdens, as we intentionally invest in the local church, the people that God has placed in our lives for this season, if we understand that this is about learning to be part of the new family of God, then, and not just to be the family of God, but to be the family of God in mission in the world together, learning with and from each other then I think it becomes very difficult to hold a, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. I just need Jesus, I don't need the church. I understand where that comes from. I understand the woundedness or or the resentment or the, um, the hardness, the cynicism that can breed that kind of posture. I'm just saying the New Testament challenges it again and again and again. I've been hurt by... People in the church. I don't like saying I've been hurt by the church because it's never the church. It's one person, it's two people, it's uh, immature or sometimes even well meaning Christians who, who just make a mistake. And part of my process of growing in holiness is to learn to love and forgive other Christians in the way that God has forgiven me. But it's hard to come into contact with Christians that are different from you and that are. Um, maybe less together than you, if you don't invest time, energy, money in a local church. Because when you're not doing that, what will inevitably happen is that you will just simply gravitate towards including Christians in your life who get it, who think like you, talk like you, interact like you, and you will you'll, you'll form your own kind of, some might say holy huddle, I would say spiritual echo chamber, Oh, if only the church could be like us. We get it. We understand what it's like. Yeah, there's a great simpatico. This is the church. That's an awesome blessing to have that kind of friendship circle. How many of you experience that kind of natural simpatico tight friendship circle in your immediate families? I don't. Our family feels like it's in a constant state of redirection, um, fighting towards what is good, fighting bad habits, fighting clashes of personality and temperaments, but there's deep love and commitment because of that, and that's what the church is supposed to be about as well. And I know that's very countercultural. I know how difficult that is, but when you prioritize gathering together, even just here on a Sunday, and worshiping together, and listening to God's word together, and resolving in your heart, even if it's, it's in a very small way to apply what you're learning, God does something. The Spirit is pleased And there's so many direct and indirect blessings that result. Now here, and in verse 11, Paul is going to emphasize chosenness. Some of your translations might have election. He's elected us. Uses a trigger word, predestination, and I use I call that a trigger word because, on a topic of predestination and God's sovereignty and human free will and how does it all work together, my experience pastorally is that there's three different people in the room at any given point. There's people who, when they hear these words and when they're um, invited to think about this topic, they are fantastically interested. They're like, ooh, this is super interesting. I love these big, crazy ideas. Love it, wanna get into this. There are other Christians and people who receive it as being eye-rollingly stale and tiresome. Maybe they've done a deep dive before or they just have people in their life who just bring this up again and again and they're like, oh, I'm just, I don't have the capacity to just deal with this right now. <laughs> this is just, I just don't, I'm not really interested. Not that I don't love God, I'm dialed into my faith, but this whole topic, oof, it's just kind of worn out for me. And then there's a third group of people who just find it mind-numbingly confusing. It just feels like an exercise in futility. This is a mystery, Why are we trying to figure out the um, mechanistic details of the mystery of the universe and how God works? The Bible says some things, and I don't understand a lot of it, and I just trust God. So I want to honor all three of those people by just spending a little bit of time here. And I'm just going to spend a little bit of time here because Paul does emphasize it throughout Ephesians 1, but it's not the focus of what he's saying. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give an overview of the two main ways Christians have understood these verses and all the New Testament verses that speak to election or predestination or foreknowledge. And then I'm gonna share my own interpretation, which is kind of a third view. That's not mine, it comes out of one of them. And then I'm gonna invite you to go on your own deep dive. For those of you who are fantastically interested, I put a bunch of links in the Summit Newsletter on Friday, about four or five, and I can give you more resources if you want, but they're a good starting point to kind of move into this discussion. And I don't know where everyone's at. If you want to read a tome, then you can come to me and I can give you a tome of knowledge on this subject. But there's at least enough to get you from zero to 30 kilometers an hour in the summit newsletter from this past Friday. So what we're talking about here when we're talking about election or chosenness or predestination, broadly speaking, is a debate that's been going on in the church for about 500 years between uh, Calvinists and Armenians. Calvinists are people who interpreted these verses in accordance with John Calvin, who is a 16th century reformer just after Luther. And people who interpret these verses in accordance with Jacob Arminius, who was born a little bit right around when Calvin died, and so he was a bit of a contemporary to Calvin, but he had a different way of reading these verses. And again, in very, very simplistic terms, what this debate boils down to is how do you understand how God works? How do you understand the relationship between God's sovereign control over reality and rulership over reality and human free will? Calvinism, this is about as small as I could shrink it down, would say when the Bible talks about predetermination, um, being chosen, the elect, when you take that in its context of the broader biblical story and the particular New Testament verses, they would say it's pretty clear that what the Bible is teaching is that God predetermined by his own free will who would believe in Christ and chose some to be saved before the foundations of the world. So even before human history rolls out, God has chosen some to be saved to be saved, though they have been predestined. Not because they were so good, not because they earned it, simply because he is gracious. We were all deserving of wrath, we were all deserving of condemnation, but God in his mercy decided to choose. And the way he chooses is by revealing himself in such a way that his grace is irresistible. It overwhelms the human will. So if you know anything about Calvinism, there's this idea that In a technical sense, human choice is not involved because God has predetermined me unto salvation. Then when he reveals himself to me at the right time, I cannot resist him. My human will cannot override God's will. So I become a Christian by the power, but also the grace of God. And God brings about salvation of the individual regardless of the individual's cooperation because God's grace is irresistible. It can't be resisted because we're not more powerful than God. Arminian took these verses about predeterminism, and there's a little bit more uh, of a nuance and flexibility in terms of how they understand some of this, but basically Arminianism would say a lot of it relies on the biblical language of foreknowledge. So God before everything, before human history played out, God who stands outside of time, because time is a created element, um, God could see who would choose him And in that foreknowledge, he chose them to be saved or to become Christians, to become in Christ. Now again, Armenians will have a different nuance on exactly how that would work, but that's kind of the basic idea. God didn't willfully pick. He gave humans a certain amount of responsibility and free will, but he foresaw who would pick and then he Predestined them to salvation So it's a little bit of a strange movement, but what our, uh, Jacob Arminius wanted to do was to um, counter Calvin's idea that God controls everything and controls who is saved and by inference who is not and Jacob Arminius said no, I believe that what comports more with the grace of God and God's character is that God would give humans the ability to choose. They still need God's grace. They can't save themselves. God will work in their lives up to the very point of compelling them to salvation, but God won't compel them. Because relationship and love has to be chosen. So God will give enough grace to human beings to choose Him, but He won't determine them. So you can see how there's, you know, kind of this, this fork in the road that affects, it becomes a domino to a lot of people's theology, right? When someone's going through hard times, how you pray for them, how you respond to them, how you talk about what they're going through will likely be pretty different if you're a Calvinist or an Armenian. Your understanding of God's sovereignty and how you move into your life will be different. Now the third view is the one that I've come to believe, although um, there's good pros and cons to each view and bible verses that seem to obviously line up with calvinism but then some that are like hmm, this doesn't seem to line up and then other ones that obviously seem to line up with arminianism and then mm, but that kind of challenges arminianism there it seems like uh, i think the view that holds the most scriptures together is something called corporate election in christ which leans towards being arminian in the sense that people have the ability to choose, but it makes sense of the predestination language because of this, for this reason. And I'll read what one commentator said. Usually when people speak about divine election or predetermination, what they're thinking of is the election of individuals. So before anything was created, there all these people in this room, and God went, you, and you, and you, and you, and you will be saved. So God is choosing individuals. But, he said, the biblical texts have a different emphasis in both the Old and New Testament when they talk about election. Election, or chosenness, is primarily a corporate term. Not corporate as in business, but corporate as in a group, a sphere that holds a group. Nothing in Ephesians 1 focuses on individuals. Rather, the text focuses collectively on those who are in Christ. And this changes the theology. People become elect only if they are in the Elect One, capital E, Jesus. Whereas Israel was chosen to convey the blessings of God to the world, now Christ has taken on that task. This this changes the theology. People become elect only in the Elect One, who is Jesus. Jesus is called the Chosen One by God in his baptism in Matthew 12. Whereas Israel was chosen to convey the blessing of God to the world, now Christ has taken on that task. He is the seed of Abraham par excellence. He fulfills Israel's election. Galatians 3 talks about that. And so election takes place in him, Ephesians 1.4, and through him, 1.5. Individuals are not elected and then put into Christ. They are in Christ and therefore elected. And a really simple way to think about this would be to say there's a boat going from spiritually dead to saved. And God, a Calvinism would say, here are all these people, God chose a bunch, put them in the boat, and those are the people who are going to be saved. Armenians would say, God saw who would choose to get in the boat, and then sealed that, and then they're saved. Corporate election would say, here's the boat, The only thing that's been predestined as it relates to salvation is that this boat is going from here to here. That will happen. God has sovereignly decreed it. It will happen. God wants, God's desire is that none would perish, but that all would be on this boat of salvation. But God will not compel you to get on that boat. But God guarantees, if you get on this boat, you will be saved. Why? Because he has predetermined Christ to be the elect one in whom just like Noah in the ark if you're in Christ you will be protected and you will be saved so what, so this attempt this view attempts to honor the strong calvinistic language of God's sovereignty God sovereignly determines the elect one but it also holds it with i think a, a plausible interpretation that says God God encourages and moves people towards faith, but he won't make them get in the boat. He'll grace them with enough understanding of who he is to bring them to that point, but he won't do it. And so the choice still remains ours. So that's kind of where I land. And again, there's more resources that you can look at. And the really good thing is, as part of the covenant church, you don't have to choose. Because the covenant theology recognizes that in this case, there are really solid, biblical, hermeneutical reasons why you could arrive at Calvinism, why you could arrive at Armenianism, or something like my view, which is an arminianistic bent on corporate election. And so in the covenant church, whenever there is a view of theology that can be grounded in scripture that Christians disagree on, our stance is to say, I want to try and understand the other person's view, we can have a good dialogue, but I don't question the other person's salvation. What I do is I enter into a posture of humility that says, you know what, at the end of the day this really is kind of mysterious. And some of the best Christian minds have been debating this for 500 years, so I'll have my views, and I'll certainly be open to learning from other people, but I don't need to go on some kind of theological witch hunt and try and push people out of their view. As long as your view is grounded in scripture, your brother and sister in Christ, and just like a family, we have different views, but we still are called to love each other, and most importantly, we're still called to to move into the mission of God together. Now, regardless of where you land, Calvinist, Armenian, corporate election, again, remember the point. Remember the point of chosenness that Paul is saying. You are chosen because God has a purpose for you election or chosenness is never, should never be used as a leverage point to say, oh, see God chose me because I'm special and I'm different than all the sinful pagans and oh, there was something special in me. No. You were saved by grace through faith. You didn't contribute anything to your salvation. It's by grace you've been saved. That's what Paul's going to say throughout Ephesians. And the reason why you're saved is to be a blessing. Jesus has not saved you for heaven. He has saved you for earth. So you are blessed and chosen in Jesus to become holy and blameless so that you can be a blessing in this world here and now. So your chosenness doesn't confer all just privileges, although it does. It also pushes you into lots of responsibility to go deeper to love God and to love people. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. One of the amazing things that you possess in Christ is the forgiveness of sins. Not just the capacity to have your sins forgiven as long as you do X, Y, and Z. You can be forgiven and God can put away your sin. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul writes in Romans 8. Verse 9, And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Paul says this is the great mystery, that the destiny of all reality is to come under the Lordship of Jesus. Everything that you see, all of human history, everything that we read about, it all finds its center in Jesus. All things are going to be completed and brought before Jesus and given over to Jesus. We call Jesus the Lord of heaven and earth Because God's plan is that all things were created through Christ and for Christ and in Christ and will finally be united in Christ and subjected to his leadership. That's why the New Testament calls Jesus the heir of all things. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. It's all about Jesus. Every storyline can only ultimately make sense if you understand it in the context of the biblical story, which is the story of Jesus. You will not understand your life until you become a Christian and understand your life in relationship to Jesus because he is the point of everything. He's the master story through which our story makes sense. (laughs) Verse 11, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Again, predestination, plan, works out everything in conformity this is where Calvinists and Arminians are going to have a, a, a parting of the ways in terms of not how, how seriously they take this text, but how they read it and understand it and apply it. Right, The word works out is energuntos, which from which we get energy. It energizes. It's to cause something to function, to bring about, to result in. And the Calvinist, when thinking about how does God's sovereignty work, how does God move and... Um, you know what exactly is meant by predetermination? How much does God predetermine? Calvinism is going to almost consistently lean towards something called meticulous determinism, which says God's sovereignty is displayed by his meticulous determinism. God has planned and purposed all things. And therefore, working out everything, and means God controls and compels history towards his end in a way that is meticulous. And Armenianism will also say God is absolutely sovereign, but they will just understand sovereignty different. They won't conflate sovereignty with complete control. What they will what they will do is they will say God is sovereign, but in his sovereignty he's made the sovereign decision to give humans who are image-bearing creatures a certain sphere of literal responsibility, the ability to respond on their own terms. It's not completely opened. God has sovereignly dictated certain elements of the plan, but a Calvinist, again, in in a bit of a caricature, might say, all of human history is like a blueprint. Every jot and tittle has been figured out in advance. An Armenian would say, some of the major things have been um, established by God sovereignly, but because God is both sovereign but a relational God, three persons in one God, relationship's important to God, and you can't have real relationship without some level of cooperation and co-willingness. And so he gives his image-bearing creatures some free will in order to shape human history. Not so much that his plans and purposes can't be um, fulfilled. And so um, a Calvinist would read this verse as being compelled and controlled in a nutshell. And Arminians would say working out would be more like God compensates. There's free will, but then God is always bending no matter what we choose. He's bending us towards his ends. So he's at work in the world, but not in a way that violates our free will, but also in a way that makes sure his ultimate purposes do come to pass. God hasn't ceded so much responsibility to humans that, mm, uh, you know, for example, maybe Jesus isn't going to come back. Like, that's kind of on us. It's like, no. There are certain things that God has sovereignly decreed. Verse 12, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation having believed, let's stop there, what did they believe? They believed the gospel. Real quick summary, I always talk about this, whenever you hear the gospel, it's a big umbrella term that can mean a lot of things, the gospel's kinda like a beautiful jewel, you've gotta turn it over, you can't quite describe it in one go, but there's at least three elements of a biblical gospel that you should come back to that you kind of have to believe in order to call yourself a Christian. And those are the three movements of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Manger, cross, crown. The gospel is that God himself came in human form to save us. We aren't saved by by simply someone who's a prophet or a great teacher. God himself came, lived a perfect life, died the death we should have died, and gave us the life that he should have gotten. There's this great exchange. Jesus takes my sin. I gain Jesus' righteousness. Jesus provides a mechanism by which human sin and forgiveness can be um, accessed. Human sin can be put away, forgiveness can be accessed by the cross. And in the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus is validated and installed as Lord of heaven and earth. He's vindicated as the true Son of God, fully God, fully man, and now has poured out His Spirit, not just so that our sins can be forgiven, but that we can walk in newness of life. We can become spiritually regenerated. We can become people who now have a heart for the things of God rather than walking in the deadness of our sin and in kind of sleepwalking in our worldly habits. Having believed this gospel, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The word marked with a seal is a translation from one Greek word. It's very hard to pronounce. esphragistethe. And it means to mark and secure for a possession and identity. It's a a royal marker that says, this is now mine, this belongs to me. And it confers the status, a a certain identity status, which um, is now held in possession on behalf of someone else. So the moment we put our faith in Christ, the moment we turn our lives over to Jesus, we are sealed and secure in Christ. So this is where I would depart from, not all, but some Armenians who would say they don't believe in eternal security because if you can choose God and choose to get in the boat of salvation, couldn't you choose at some point to jump out of the boat? That makes sense from a philosophical theological level, but this would be a verse that would say, I think if our uh, conversion is genuine, we are eternally secure in Christ because we've been sealed. God allows us to make the decision, but once we make the decision, we're adopted. And with that adoption does not come the threat, we'll all unadopt you though if you screw up or mess up or even if you have a season like the prodigal son, you're like, I don't know if I want to be a part of this family anymore. Oh, that's too bad. You're part of this family now. You're sealed. I'm coming to get you. I will come and pursue you. You're a lost sheep. I will come and get you. I'll leave the 99 because you're mine now. You don't have a seal of yourself on yourself anymore, you now have the seal of Christ. The moment we put our faith in Christ, we're sealed and secured, we're marked for his possession. And, we're, and Paul says that the spirit is given as a deposit, and the word deposit is the Greek word Erebon, and it means a down payment that guarantees a complete payment. It's the first of an inevitable down payment which we can understand on a few levels. Number one, also our salvation has been secured, but we haven't received our capital S salvation from our body of death, from a life of sin and death. That's coming when Jesus returns, our full capital S salvation. But it also means that whatever we experience in this life, as it relates to sweetness of intimacy, those moments of um, spirit-filled grandeur where we realize the Holy Spirit just does something and God's presence is incredibly close, or we just have this amazing sense of the awesomeness of God, that is a deposit. It's a foretaste of something much larger that's going to be our future. And one commentator said this. I know, we're we're, we're pushing through stuff. I know, I'm almost done. One commentator said this. He said, imagine the most sublime, the most treasured experience of the Holy Spirit you've ever had in your life, and realize that those moments are only a foretaste. They're just a deposit. Remember the release in coming to Christ and knowing that you were forgiven. Remember the time when you worshipped and you were smitten with awe. Remember the time when you followed the Spirit's leading and you were used in a wonderful and powerful way. Remember the satisfaction of finding the fruits of of the Spirit surprising you uh, with goodness when you once responded wickedly. Think of all of these things and multiply them a million-fold. Here on Earth, we have experienced the first dollar of a million celestial dollars. We have experienced the deposit. We have the dawning of knowledge, but one day we will have and experience the midday sun burning in its brightness. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. I used to do that as a teenager. I used to lie in bed and challenge that scripture by trying to imagine how glorious life in the new heavens and new earth could be. And it was always humbling and exciting to realize it didn't matter how far I stretched my imaginative horizon, God's answer was always the same. Oh, that ain't nothing. You're not even close. Good try. Good for you, like a condescending way. Oh, good for you, Jeff. You've got quite an imagination there. Yeah, I can see where you're going. You're just kind of off by a scale that would you know, blow your mind. Just amazing. We have the Arabon. We have the deposit that guarantees that the full inheritance is coming. So now we don't have to live with anxiety. We know our eternal future is secured, so we can live... In a much more recklessly generous and loving way, here we don't have to hold back because we know there's a celestial trust fund and we will enjoy God forever so we can pour out our lives here now. We don't have to worry about gathering up all the experiences now, we can let that go and focus on God. Doesn't mean we don't enjoy life, God given a Sabbath to enjoy life. I'm not saying that, I'm just saying the focal point from recreating and taking in and consuming and getting more and experiencing more, however well-intended that might be, can become very idolatrous. And when we understand what we have in Christ, we can set that aside and now begin to realize, oh, I've been blessed to be a blessing, not to just simply wallow in my own blessedness. What does it look like for me to extend that blessing this week? Okay, how do we apply all of this? This is a weird text to try and apply. How do we apply it? What are we supposed to do with this? Well, there's lots here. We could probably have spent six months going through these verses. But let me just wrap up by emphasizing two major themes that are here. The first is, get off the throne. You are not the center of your life. I'm not the center of my life. I'm not the point of life. I'm not the point of my life. Certainly not as a Christian. I'm a saint called to be blameless and holy and to grow in that as I participate with God and learn to receive grace that I need. Before I was a Christian, I was on the throne of my heart, my life. I'm in control. This is my life. Capital S, self. That referred to me. And this whole doxology, and that's what this is, it's it's one long extended word of glory about how glorious God is. It's about putting our focus on how awesome God is. Paul doesn't start his letter to the Ephesians being like, you're so great and awesome and hearing these reports and you're doing awesome and you're amazing and when you did this, he's going to talk about things that they're praiseworthy for but he's going to start by saying God's amazing. God is God. You are not. And that's fundamentally what it means to become a Christian is to recognize that you're on the throne of your life. I don't want to be on the throne of my life. I shouldn't be on the throne of my life. That throne wasn't made for me. It's made for Jesus. I need to get off the throne, bend the knee to him and say you're Lord and Savior, save me, but also be my Lord. Help me to live into this new kind of life. Get off the throne of your life. And number two, worship big. Easily and naturally, we slip into a preoccupation with our own petty little affairs. This is a quote. But we need to see time in the light of eternity and our present privileges and obligations in the light of our um, past election and future protection. And then we will share the apostles' perspective. And life will become worship. And we will bless God constantly for having blessed us so richly in Christ. And another commentator said this is why worship and praise is so crucial, not just corporately on Sunday morning, but this is, is part of why it's crucial, but throughout our week. Because real worship and real praise that is God focused and looks Godward, not selfward, exposes us and gives us the opportunity to tell the truth about who we are and who God is. And worship recreates us. It it, it reestablishes who we are in Christ. And in worship what we're doing is we're rejecting the false stories that tell us life is about us. And we're at the center. And our own blessedness and happiness is the bottom line. And instead it's about bringing glory to God. And therefore we need to focus and be intense in our worship. When I was a um, youth pastor. Didn't do it all the time, but I would often, maybe four or five times a year, I would challenge the students and say, not for every Sunday, but the next Sunday you come to church. Come to church, sit in the front row, close your eyes if you have to, if you're embarrassed to sit in the front row, you have to look around, and you sing as hard as you can. You should be sweating by the time. We're done worship. You don't have to dance around. You don't have to make a scene. You don't have to overly exaggerate. It's It's not about putting on a show. But bring a sacrifice of praise. We bring a sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. I get it. I've been there. Sometimes I do it. I fall into that trap. Paul says when we see the bigness of who God is, we should respond with that kind of worship. And again, that doesn't mean an artificial performative thing to be seen as holier or more in love with Jesus or anything. It's not about display. But it is about bringing a certain intensity and focus where we want to, we have so much praise um, and thankfulness to God building up in our heart, we just sing and talk and run on sentences that last for two or three minutes. What would it look like for you to bring greater intensity, greater focus, greater preparedness, to prepare, not to show up at 10 o'clock and kind of be like, I'm here and my mind's kind of all over and da-da-da, but to begin preparing at 9 o'clock or at 8 o'clock prayerfully or in worship so that you come here with worship momentum. I think that's important. Not just here, small group, all the time. Sing in your car, worship big. Sing your guts out worship should feel like a workout a lot of the time so let's take a cue from Paul's word of glory we're going to end our time today by singing the doxology together we did this last week i'm going to invite you to stand the doxology is just a fancy word that means word of glory what we have in Ephesians 1:3 to 14 is a doxology it's hard to sing so we'll just sing the regular doxology but we're going to sing it with intensity and we're going to sing it loudly. Even if we're off key, it doesn't matter. We're going to sing it with intensity and focus.